0: Listen, and I shall tell you many tales. Come in here that you may know when all belief fails. I was once acquainted with a man most foul in disposition and intent. While his story may seem altogether too fantastic to be believed, I implore you, do not discount the vast and mysterious nature of possibility within our reality. His name was Washington William Whitman. I'm afraid I don't know much about his childhood. He used to say that he was beget of a bitch of the abyss who'd been raped by a mischievous demigod. (laughs) I think that tells you something of his character. The man had a grudge against the world. At 18, he committed his first murder by shooting the mother of three children during the violent robbery of a diamond wholesaler. He wouldn't be convicted of that crime, nor any other, until the age of 25 when he was finally apprehended for the rape of a senator's daughter. With the uh, concept of impartiality being a fantasy, the judge, uh, Charles Layley, taking into account all of the crimes that he had been suspected of, though no evidence could be produced to convict, gave Washington the maximum sentence allowed under the law for rape, 75 years in the penitentiary. However, Citing the extreme savagery of the act and the obvious lack of remorse on the part of the accused, he invoked an obscure little statute that allowed him to extend the maximum sentence of any term up to the length of the term already determined. In essence, he was allowed to double the maximum sentence of any crime under these extenuating circumstances. And that's exactly what he did. Washington William Whitman was sentenced to 150 years in prison without the possibility for parole. Judge Laley decreed, Never again shall you walk among your fellow man, never again shall you share in his hopes and his joys, and never again shall you, a living plague, poison the blood of his society. Washington smiled at him and told him that he would kill his children's 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 children one day. He was taken to the Maximum Security Subterranean Correctional Facility, nicknamed the Grotto, which had been constructed as an extension to a massive cave under Fecan Peak. The inmates never saw sunlight, even their yard time was artificially lit, with gargantuan floodlights that had been drilled into the granite roof of the cave, leaving everything outside of their limited scope in darkness. They were all given a substantial vitamin D supplement with every meal. They lost all sense of night and day, all sense of season. The passage of time became something that couldn't be reliably tracked, an extra little torture for those unfortunate souls sent there. The dirty little truth of this prison was that a majority of the inmates never served out their entire sentence there. It tilled the mind, made it fertile, so that madness could take root without the slightest need for cultivation. The prison had so many suicides that eventually they had to employ extra guards to patrol the blocks during the lights out to keep watch. Washington disembarked from the funicular, the only way in and out of the prison. His eyes took some time to adjust. Even though the prison and the surrounding chamber were lit, the ambient light level was still so low that everyone remained in a state of dilation, a fact that was exploited by the guards. Their first level of aggression control was to shine their powerful flashlights into the prisoner's tender eyes. He was taken into a holding chamber, stripped, sprayed down with the stinging stream of a fire hose, and given his uniform. A one-piece that he was told would be his only piece of clothing, aside from his underwear. It would be washed only once per week, and would not be replaced even if torn or stained until the annual renewal. So he'd better keep it in good condition, or he'd be doing his work duty in his bare ass. When he was taken to a cell, just as he got there, the janitor-prisoner wheeled out a mop and bucket, the water darkened by something. Washington stepped into his cell and saw the smears of a large bloodstain the janitor had not gotten completely clean. The janitor turned back and said, Early release. Washington kept mostly to himself for the first few months. He wasn't the type to make friends, even on the outside, so he didn't see much of a point in here. But he was a watcher. He watched how things unfolded, saw patterns and scrutinized weaknesses of all the people around him, prisoner and guard alike. He watched the warden from the yard, up in his office, overlooking the whole facility, never coming anywhere near the population. But most days he'd walk to the outer fence, which was only six feet tall and didn't feature the normal accoutrement of razor wire or double barriers. Couldn't believe it when he'd first gotten there, such a weak effort of security. But then he realized they didn't even need the fence. It was the the dark, the true impenetrable dark. That kept them right where they were. No amount of dilation could ever help the navigation of such an abyss. A place whose rocks didn't even have the memory of sunlight. He'd stare out at it, feeling somehow terrified of it, yet beckoned by it at the same time. Sometimes he'd stare so long he'd swear he could hear a faint voice calling to him in the dark. There were many moments in his first year that he had the urge to hop the fence and traverse the unseen reaches. Damn the dangers. But something fundamental inside of him, a burning drive to continue, always prevented him. He still had business in the world of man. And by his third year, he was already a very respected inmate among the guards and his fellows. Ever the loner, he didn't join any of the factions which always naturally splinter when a large group of people are forced together. But he had shown his mettle. How? Why am I tinting it? He'd shown his viciousness on enough occasions to be feared by even the roughest groups. The only other person he interacted with was a mousy little man, Gerald Beck, who, though you'd never think of it, to look at him, had been responsible for the theft of more money than all of the other inmates combined over the course of all their lifetimes. What interested Washington so much was that most often people like Gerald, genteel and banal, weren't prosecuted, or if they were, never ended up in a place like this. When he asked him about it, Gerald said that people only dismiss financial crimes when it happens to other people. It was just dumb luck and bad luck that he'd happened to have bankrupted the judge who presided in his case, and who had refused to recuse himself despite numerous petitions from Gerald's defense team. Such is life, Gerald said. Most guys in here spend their life thinking they're fucking the system. (laughs) Then one day they wake up on a cot in a concrete closet and realize it's the system been fucking you. System doesn't get fucked, it does the fucking... That's just part of the bargain. You either live with it or you get out." This was a sentiment that Washington took to heart and would live the rest of his life by its guiding principle. Ten or so years later, long after Gerald had been disemboweled in the toilets, Washington led his first uprising. He had spent the better part of the last decade wresting the power of inmate factions into his own clutches. He unified all the inmates into a single cohort, all beholden and subjugated to him. The guards, hell, even the warden weren't opposed to it, they encouraged it. The prison had gone from one of the most violent in the country to one without incident, all because the fundamental rifts between groups had been bridged. And whether they liked it or not, no one would dare cross Washington, And it was this measure of respect for Washington that allowed him to execute his plan. He was afforded a certain level of autonomy that was unheard of in a prison like this. He had pretty much free range of the place, having gained the trust and respect of the staff and security. So one day during chow time, he sauntered up to the security office and chatted with Officer Starbuck, a young guy, and not one of the more physically imposing guards, thus why he worked in the office, watching the inmates on camera and dispatching the heavies as needed. Though, with Washington keeping all his men in line, there wasn't much need to be hypervigilant in those days. So Starbuck went off to use the toilet, leaving Washington alone. The following three minutes would ensure the doom of many men, guards and inmates alike, Washington removed the circuits that recorded the camera feeds, and he made a key card with unlimited access to the prison. And later that night, it started. Washington left his cell and opened up all the rest. He armed the inmates with weapons from the armory, told them to kill any guard they saw. <laughs> he avoided most of the conflict going around the quiet corridors away from the fighting, walking into the warden's apartment, finding him cowering in the closet. The warden, pleading with Washington to spare him, asked him why he had done this. Washington shrugged and said that it was graduation day. Then he cut the warden's throat. But it was as they made their approach toward the funicular that his plan was foiled. The operator started it toward the surface when he saw the inmates running toward it, but they were able to reach it in time enough to get on board. It was packed full of convicts, with some even hanging on to the bottom as it ascended. They tried to break into the booth. The operator fought them with a fire extinguisher, but he could see it was no use. He smashed the emergency button, which sent an emergency radio signal through the relays to the surface, and fired explosive bolts which detached the cable. The funicular rolled back down the steep incline, gaining speed until it smashed into the bottom of the shaft, killing all who were underneath it and many who were inside. Washington limped out, his lip curled into a snarl, and disemboweled whoever he saw, whether inmate or stray guard, as he made his way back to his cell. He laid down on his cot, turning toward the wall and falling into a peaceful restorative sleep. There would be no way of proving this. Washington's deactivation of recording devices ensured that, but the violence was perpetrated by less than 40% of the inmate population. But that didn't stop the prison commission from taking a, let's say, an aggressive strategy of patience. Like a medieval siege, they'd trapped their enemies in their castle, and now waited for them to starve. <laughs> An entire season passed in the world above, with a ration sent down into the dark. When they finally did send a team down, after sixteen weeks, and armed with military weaponry and tactics, fewer than a sixth of the inmate population survived. Of those who had not perished in the initial conflict, many had expired from extreme malnourishment. Others fled into the dark of the abyss, delirious with hunger. And the survivors? (laughs) Well, the survivors were sustained by... What was at hand? (laughs) When the security team finally made its way through the ghastly scene of the prison... Even they were taken aback by the absolute putrescence and ghoulishness of what must have transpired in the time that the inmates were alone. The evidence of which could be found smeared on the walls, rotting on the floors, and dried under the survivors' fingernails. Except, of course, for Washington's. They found him lounging on his bed, reading a book of sonnets. (laughs) His cell was immaculate, and he looked well-fed. A few years after the uprising, after the carnage had been scrubbed and concealed by a new coat of paint, the truly strange and weird part of Washington's story begins. The passage of time, reflected in the face of a man, is always so subtle in its progression that it is nearly imperceptible from day to day. But when committed to a nearly interminable prison sentence, one stops measuring time in days, and starts counting by years instead, an advance which is as ruthless and different, and apparent, as erosion. Washington, however, changed by some unknowable force, either from within or without, had become immune to the ravages of time. Where other men's flesh withers and softens like overripe fruit, his grew smooth and hard, as if as impossible as it may seem it had undergone some nuclear metamorphosis and had become, for want of a better definition a kind of organic mineral and like that, he was a man of fifty a quarter of a century of his sentence spent with another buck twenty-five still in the bank then seventy-five fifty years gone yet not a day was reflected on his face. He bore witness to thousands of criminals coming and going, either released from their bondage or released from their burdens. Still he remained, eyes on the abyss. And with his breadth of vision, seeing beyond what most men can ever witness in their brief lifetimes, he started to understand something about man wasn't something he could, or maybe just something he would articulate, and it was a piece of knowledge that dwelled in his stomach rather than his mind. It grew bigger and heavier every time he saw an inmate be denied a meal as a reprimand, or locked alone in solitary confinement till they bashed their own heads in, or forced to wear and work in rags because they had six months left before they were issued a new uniform at the annual renewal or driven mad enough to flee into the dark of the abyss, and when he looked up to the warm light of the warden's quarters perched high above the yard, and when he read in the paper of record about the morality massacres of the heartland, or years later, when he read of the great and terrible war that engulfed the entire globe, and watched as inmates were given a choice to commute their sentences if they enlisted. Nearly the whole prison was emptied, But no prisoner who enlisted ever saw a life outside a uniform. And all the while, Washington grew harder and harder. It got to be that he could feel almost nothing through his crystalline skin. But it was the hardening of his heart that was most significant. His passion, his anger, cooled was replaced by a sort of indifference toward the suffering he saw and he himself caused. After the first twenty years or so of his sentence, when he was most engaged in his violent tendencies, he turned away from other people and kept out of sight as well as he could. And so it was that he carried on with little fanfare, strolling past his hundredth birthday without even a candle lit in his honor. In any of the brief encounters he would have with any of the incoming and outgoing prisoners, guard and inmate alike, there was little to implicate anything extraordinary about him. And so as their time expired, on he marched until a new crop came, finding him wholly unextraordinary again. And that's how he served his entire 150-year sentence, without anyone making a special mention of it, till they saw it was time for him to be released. At first, the staff was sure it was a clerical error, and double, then triple-checked his paperwork. But when it was realized that he had actually been in the grotto for 150 years, making him 175 years old, the warden, the 17th that had presided over him during his sentence, had to speak with him. (laughs) And for the second time in his long life, Washington entered the warden's quarters and its warm light. The warden, a stout little man, studied his face, his body, his limbs, as one would an exotic animal up close. The warden smiled at him, offering him his first real drink in scores of years. Washington sipped it, casually mentioning the warden who had been murdered in that very room. "'Oh, the things you must have seen here,' the warden chuckled. "'I guess even in 150 years you've never seen inside here, though, have you?' Washington smiled. "'Oh no, I've been here before.' The warden fell silent for a moment, considering the implications, then nervously chuckled and asked, well... What are you going to do when you ascend? With a sly little smirk, Washington said, I've got some ideas. Inmates, upon release from the grotto, are returned their personal possessions which they forfeited upon processing, and they are also issued a pair of sunglasses. As Washington ascended in the funicular, he put on the glasses, but still found the spring sunlight to be blinding. After all, he had not actually seen nor been in any natural light for the entire length of his sentence, and he found the world very much different, yet also the same first thing he did after checking into the reform complex was to find a library. (laughs) He found none. He thought it ironic that when he first entered prison, he never visited one, and now that he was trying to, none still existed. But he did find the great stores of information being kept electronically. However, he couldn't research what he needed to, learning that all information searches are logged and recorded with the information of the person doing the search. He needed to leave no trail. After some personal networking around the reform complex, he found someone with a connection that had an anonymous search node. He found the genealogical records for Judge Charles Layley, his descendants, and their whereabouts. Lately, had a total of 26 great-great-grandchildren. Washington spent several weeks committing the list to memory, and then destroyed it. And then, he spent the next year crisscrossing the country, murdering each one, just as he'd promised to do the day he'd been sentenced. And then he vanished. All record of him ceases after that. However... some time later there was a man who went by the name William Washington who had managed to create and implement a new national correctional policy which was in keeping with the spirit of the newly minted reactionary administration detailed a plan in which all convicted felons would become the physical property of the new National Association of Retributive Justice a non-governmental organization which would receive governmental funds for the maintenance of said felons for the period of their sentence, along with raking in cash with the private contracts it received from various corporations to populate agricultural and industrial interests with nearly free labor. Inmates couldn't refuse to work. They were property and could be treated as such. It's remarkable how quickly laws can be made stricter and harsher when there's a profit to be made. William Washington became one of the most wealthy and influential men in the country now I don't know for sure that Washington William Whitman became William Washington but I will say that William Washington was reputed to have stone skin and never remove his sunglasses Please consider these things in your. God. It's been five years today. I guess that's why I told this story today. It reminds me of man's fundamental shortcomings. We can aspire to such great things, such great heights. Or see a state of being, this idea of harmony, but just incapable of creating it. <laughs> or maybe it was just to remind myself that I was right. Well, listen to the music of the inimitable Masako. Whose notes dance to the turning of the earth?